الحمد لله وكفى والسلام على عباده الذين اصطفى اما بعد اعوذ بالله من الشيطان الرجيم بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم هل يستوي الذين يعلمون والذين لا يعلمون سبحان ربك رب العزه اما يصفون وسلام على المرسلين والحمد لله رب العالمين اللهم صل على سيدنا محمد وعلى ال سيدنا محمد وبارك وسلم Today we're going to be teaching you a classical text by Imam al-Ghazali rahimahullah ta'ala Imam al-Ghazali is Abu Muhammad, Muhammad ibn Muhammad al-Ghazali Abu Hamid, Muhammad ibn Muhammad al-Ghazali He had a younger brother by the name of Ahmad ibn Muhammad al-Ghazali Also actually a quite famous scholar of the Sobuf in his own right But the famous Imam al-Ghazali is Abu Hamid Muhammad ibn Muhammad al-Ghazali His date of birth has been given alternatively either in 1058 common era 1058 this is the date that most biographi- biographical dictionaries and histories of Islam mention however when you look at his own autobiography and the different periods of life that he describes if you calculate his date of birth on the basis of that it would be suggested that he was born in 1055 and he passed away in 1111 so you're looking at the end of 11th century mid 11th century into the cusp of the 12th century Imam Ghazali was born in Tus which is near Tabaran which is in modern day Iran It's located about 15 kilometers or miles from the modern city of Mashhad. Some of the early dictionaries describe Tus as being part of Khurasan. Either way, the important thing is that Imam Ghazali was a Persian. Ethnically speaking, he was a Persian. He was not an Arab. This is something that very few people know. He was not an Arab. He was a Persian. but because the arabic language was the lingua franca or the spoken written language of all of the ulama it was the scholarly language in the entire islamic civilization and because iran and iraq were both centers of the islamic civilization he was a master of the arabic language in fact you would also some of you may be surprised to know that the famous six muhaddithin compilers of the so-called Sihah Sitta not a single one of them was Arab either Imam Bukhari and Imam Tirmidhi were Uzbeks Central Asians in their ethnicity and Imam Muslim and Nisai Abu Dawud and Ibn Majah all four of them were Persians all six of them were also non-Arabs and this is one of the actual great features of the Islamic intellectual tradition is the contribution of non-Arabs to the tradition of Islamic scholarship but that contribution is going to be in the arabic language just like today you will have professors from all types of different nationalities in leading universities in america and in england but the language that they're all going to be writing in is english doesn't necessarily mean that they are american or british but the language of modern scholarship just like the language of modern scholarship today is english you know without insult to the french and germans who have maintained their own tradition and have their own university tradition but in the anglo-american tradition the language is english although you will have non-brits and non-americans writing in that 
Just like then, the Islamic tradition, the language was Arabic. And Imam al-Ghazali is a master of the Arabic language. And we tell this to you so that if, inshallah, you make the niyyah intention in your heart to study Arabic, you don't have to worry. There's a long history of non-Arabs who have excelled in the Arabic language and have articulated the finest and highest level of high classical Islamic scholarship in the Arabic language. So you have a tradition that you can connect yourself to, because the vast majority of you seem to be non-Arabs in terms of your ethnic background. Imam al-Ghazali received his early education in his hometown of Tus, along with his brother. And he studied in a madrasa known as the Nizamiya Madrasa in Nishapur. Nishapur is also a city in Iran. These were nine madrasas, Madaris and Nizamiya. Nine madrasas that were established by Nizam al-Mulk. Nizam al-Mulk was the vizier, which means the number two person. And he served under three different Seljuk sultans. So in terms of Islamic history, you're looking at the Seljuk period. There's a story, and I don't know if this is a dramatized or fictionalized story of Imam al-Ghazali when he was a student. And the story goes as follows, that Nizam al-Mulk was told by several people that the mother says that you have opened up your intention was that you would give rise to a new class of actually civil servant, a new class of civil society elites who were trained in logic, rhetoric, philosophy, astronomy, geometry, which was the sciences of that time, as well as deeply trained in the Qur'an, in the Sunnah, the Hadith, Usul, Fiqh, Aqidah, Kalam, the Islamic knowledges. However, the vast majority of people who are going to your institutes are going there for material gain. They're going there for the sake of dunya, for the sake of fame. So he was stunned, he was hurt, so he decided to go. Now you see, this is a time in human history before visual imagery. There's no TV, photographs, so people don't know what Nizam al looks like. <laughs> All the students know that he is the one who has established this institute, but they have no idea what he looks like, right? Like I myself don't think I know what the Vice Chancellor of Oxford looks like, right? So when he went to the mother's son, he started asking the students. So he asked one student, that, why are you here? So the student said that I'm here because I want to become an imam in the Jami Masjid. Because the imam has a lot of respect in society. Oh, he went to a second student and said, why are you here? I want to become khatib. I want to give the khutbah. Because the khatib is given a lot of respect in society. Asked another student, why are you here? So all of them said the same thing. One wanted to become mufti. One wanted to become Qadi. So after he kept asking all these students and he kept getting the same answer, so he decided in his heart that I'm going to close down all these madrasas. And I was correctly informed that people are here for the wrong reason. And this is not why I want people to be studying. For the sake of fame and stature. So on his way out, as legend has it, history has it, however you want to view it, he saw a student reading that by this time it was evening time, reading by candlelight, so he said, okay, let me ask this one last student. So he went to him and said, why are you here? And he said, I'm too busy for you. <laughs> and he didn't know. <laughs> it was the founder of the institute. And then he asked him two or three times. So the student realized now that the only way to get rid of this nuisance is to actually answer the question to the satisfaction of this person, and then the person will move on. So he looked up to him and he said, I'm here because the knowledge that is in these books is the knowledge of how to make a person pleasing to Allah 
That is why I came here. Now, if you could kindly leave me alone so I can get back to my studies. And as history would have it, or legend would have it, that student went on to become Imam Ghazali, rahimahullah So he had ikhlas in his niyyah. He had sincerity and purity in his intention. However, interestingly, and another very important text, and maybe one day, inshallah, we will do that with you, which is Imam Ghazali has written his own autobiography, Al-Munqid Min Al-Zalal, which literally means the deliverance from error. And this is a spiritual autobiography. What does that mean? He doesn't talk about everything in his life. He specifically talks about his spiritual journey, his journey of faith. He specifically talks about his spiritual journey, his journey of faith. This is, this is that text that is going to affect St. Thomas Aquinas, is going to affect Descartes. In that, what does he mention? What happened to him? So in, I was starting you out with his birthday to let's say 1055 or 1058. In the year 1091, Nizam al-Mulk, the vizier of the Sultan, appointed Imam Ghazali as a professor in the core campus of the Madrasa Nizami, which is in Baghdad. Baghdad, although it may be a city today which is continually bombed and has all types of green zones, Baghdad was actually one of the greatest historical centers of Islamic learning and scholarship for centuries. So although he studied in Nishapur, which is a branch of Madrasa Zamiya. He was appointed as a professor. Now you can take what age would this be? If you take 1055, so he would be 36 years old. And if you take 1058, he would be 33 years old. So at the age of 33 to 36, he was appointed as a professor in the Madrasa Zamiya. He was able to teach there for three years, from 1091 to 92 to 93. In the year 1093, he writes this about himself in his autobiography. He experienced what in English we would today call a crisis of faith. <coughs> he actually experiences two crises of faith. The first crisis of faith is one of pure skepticism and doubt. He begins to doubt everything. Now, he doesn't doubt the existence of Allah Subhanahu He doesn't become an atheist. He doesn't even flirt with atheism. Neither does he have the need to skirt atheism. But what he doubts is his ability to know Allah. What he doubts in some sense is the knowability of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, not the existence of Allah. Notwithstanding this crisis, he continues to teach. And he writes about himself, and he does this for two more years. So up till 1095, he continues to teach. And he writes about himself that he maintained the outward, the zahir aspect of Islam. Outwardly teaching, preaching, practicing, praying, Right? during which time he actually became the most famous professor in all of the Islamic lands, became the most renowned Islamic scholar in all of the Islamic world. Students would flock to Baghdad just for the privilege and honor of studying by him. But inside, <laughs> inside he was in a crisis. So then he, the first crisis is resolved, that he says that Allah subhanahu and he quotes some ayat from the Qur'an, that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala cast a nur, a light, of hidayah, of guidance into his sadr, into his breast. And he says, Allah ta'ala expanded for me. So this is what you call grace or providence, the divine being. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala himself guided Imam Ghazali into absolute yaqeen. And this is a term Ghazali talks about a lot. Yaqeen, absolute certainty, faith, conviction in the existence of Allah. 
But then he went through a second crisis of faith. <laughs> the second crisis of faith now was, how am I going to find this Allah? <laughs> how am I going to search for Allah? That led him, for those next one or two years, to explore. This is a different text I'm doing with you very briefly. Al-Munqid min al He explores what he calls the four categories of seekers that existed in his time. The first category that he looked at were the mutakallimun, the theologians, the ulama of ilmul kalam, those who tried to arrive at the understanding of certainty through their theological pursuits. In fancy English, they call this sometimes a dialectic theology. They were trying sometimes to use rational proofs even to prove the certain belief in the existence of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And Ghazali himself actually was a very big alim of ilmul kalam. He's written books on this. But when it came to his own personal journey to Yaqeen, he said, I didn't find fulfillment in Ilmul Kalam. He says, I believe it can work for others, and certainly what may not work for one may work wonders for others. But he says, I don't feel that it's going to work for me. Second group he examined was at that time there was a particular sect of the Agakhani Ismailis, or rather I should say a particular sect of the Ismailis known as the Nizari Ismailis, or sometimes called the Bataniya. They were people who believed that all of ultimate reality lies in the esoteric, in the button. And that human akal will never be able to dis- understand the truth. Therefore you need the imam, the Shia concept of imam. Without the imam you can never get yakin. So all yakin is based on the imam. And doing taklid of that imam. This is a particular use of this word taklid. Right? Taklid is an Arabic language word. It can be used in different contexts. Sometimes it is used in Sunni Fikan Usul for the non-Mujtahid to follow a Mujtahid, for the non-Jurist to follow a Jurist. That is the more widespread understanding of Taklid in this day and age. But the Shi'i, Nizari Ismailis, also use the word Taklid for the following of a Shia follower of their Imam. It's that type of Taklid which can be better translated in English as blind following or blind acquiescence. And they accepted that anything and everything that the Imam said would be true. So Imam Ghazali looked at that as well and he read up on their theology and he said, I don't find this acceptable either. And later on he wrote then a whole book refuting uh, and identifying what he thought were the flaws in this particular strand of Shi'i Ismaili theology. The third group he looked at, who were also claiming to find certainty at his time, were the philosophers, philosopha in Arabic, the philosophers. This in particular was a tradition by, left by Ibn Sina, Al-Farabi, and Al-Kindi. And these were Muslim philosophers who were following Plato, Aristotle, and Plotinus. Neoplatonism actually means that they followed Plotinus, not Plato. And they were absorbing a lot of those ideas. And they had all types of their own ideas. In that, Imam Uzai writes, I spent two years studying philosophy. Two years I spent reading the books on philosophy. Then later he even wrote a book on philosophy called Maqasidul Philosopha, The Aims and Objectives of the Philosophers. He felt that to really master a science, I must articulate it in writing. Just like today, right, if you want to get a doctorate, they feel that in order to master it, not only must you read and study, but you must articulate your knowledge of that area in a substantial piece of writing. So he wrote a book. This first, this book is not critiquing philosophy at this stage. It's just trying to articulate what it is that the philosophers think. And according to all accounts, Western, Muslim, Latin, everyone, 
he had done that accurately. He actually faithfully articulated, and actually this book was translated into Latin, and was many times used in Europe. Rizali's Arabic work, translated in Latin, read by Europeans as a great textbook of Aristotelian philosophy. <laughs> That's how well he captured what the aims and objectives of the philosophers were. But then he writes again, that I didn't feel that this was a satisfactory way to get Yakin. And the fourth group then that he looks at, so the first were the Mutakallimun, the theologians, the second was a particular strand of Shi'i, Ismaili, Nizari, Batani, Ismailis, and the third group were the philosopher, the philosophers. The fourth group that he looked at were the people of Tasawwuf, the Mutasawwifun. And after spending some time with them, he first says, I learned, I started reading their books, and after I learned and read everything that I could and find in their books, I realized one thing. This is not something you're going to understand from books. <laughs> something that you would be well, you would do well to keep in mind throughout the course of today. <laughs> that you will not be able to understand this completely through books. Right? So then he decided to leave. And this is in 1095. When he came to this realization that you cannot learn everything about the Sohaf in books. But secondly, he also realized that these are the people who have the Yaqeen. These are those seekers on the path that can bring a person to Yaqeen. So he was determined now that this is the path I need to follow. And this is a path not just of study, but a path of practice. So in 1095, he suddenly gave up. He resigned. It's a very long story. One day we will do that text, inshallah. There's all types of details I'm skipping here. He resigned his post, which was a shocking thing. It's like somebody resigning the chair at Harvard and going off and spending some time in a monastery. <laughs> so he resigned. And he left. Now he was a bit worried because there's a lot of interrelationship between politics, history and culture in this particular period of Muslim history. And he didn't want anybody to think that his resignation meant somehow that he was making a political statement that he was critiquing the Seljuk Sultan or he was critiquing the Vizier Nizam al-Mulk and that's why he was leaving the Madrasa. And in any case, he made Nia to go for Hajj. So all he simply told people was that I'm leaving and I'm going for Hajj. And Allahu Alam, Allah knows when I will come back. But he made a long journey and he visited several sacred places and stayed there for several months before he ended up arriving in Makkah Mukarramah and went to Medina Munawwara. The three most important places that he visited, one was Damascus, or Damascus the second was Quds, Jerusalem, and the third was Al-Khalil, known as Hebron in English, right? The resting place of Sayyidina Ibrahim salam. And he picked these places because they were special. You would know in the deen of Islam that according to hadith, Damascus is the place where Imam Mahdi will alight. And in fact, he went and spent a lot of time in the Umayyad Masjid. The Jami Masjid al Umawi, as they say in Damascus today. He spent months there, engaged in ibadah and worship. Then he went to Jerusalem, obviously that all of you know is the third most sacred place in the deen of Islam. And I already mentioned to Khalil, he went there because that was the resting place of Sayyidina Ibrahim alayhi salam. 
In many places in the Quran, Allah Subhanahu mentions that our deen is a deen in which we follow Millat Ibrahim. That is an Abrahamic faith. This concept of Abrahamic faith is actually most precisely articulated in the Quran. The Quran and Kareem self-consciously, repeatedly refers to Islam as an Abrahamic way, an Abrahamic faith, refers to the Prophet is following in the line of Sayyidina Ibrahim This was the reason he went there. Now for about two years he was able to stay away. And he writes that he left behind enough provision for his family. And then he came back. When he came back he went to Hajj, went to Medina Munawa, then he eventually came back around 1097. When he came back, he made a decision that he wouldn't teach anymore in the madrasa. So he made what we call in Persian a khanka, what you call in Arabic a zawiya. He made a center for spiritual learning, a sanctuary for seekers on the path in Tus. And from 1096, 1097, for about 10 years, all he was doing in this time was writing, teaching, continuing in his dhikr, but also living with his family and teaching seekers on the path who came to him in Tus. In 1106, he decided to resume his teaching post in the madrasa. He went back to becoming a professor at the Nizamiya madrasa. And he did that because he felt that it was part of his public service duty now to return to academia and to try to reform academia from within. So he first did his massive writing product of reform, which is to write Ihya Ulumuddin, which is called his magnum opus, his masterpiece work, the revival of the religious disciplines. It's a mistranslation to call it religious sciences, because the English term science has a different connotation. Ulum doesn't, is much broader than science. So we would rather use the English word disciplines, Ihya Ulumuddin, the revival of the religious disciplines. After writing that, he felt he had to practically go and revive that by resuming teaching, but because he wanted to stay near his hometown Tus, and he continued teaching in his Zawiyah, in his spiritual lodge, so this time he rejoined the same branch of the Madrasa that he was a student at, which is in the Madrasa Nishapur. So he rejoined Madrasa Nizamiya, but not in the Baghdad main campus. He rejoined Madrasa Nizamiya in Nishapur, and then he kept teaching there as well as in his Zawiyah in Tus, and kept writing until he passed away, Rahimahullah Ta'ala, in the year 1111. This text, before I move to the text, let me tell you a little bit more about Imam Ghazali. One problem that a lot of Muslims who live in the West have in their approach to Imam Ghazali, and this is what I call a post-colonial phenomenon, and that is that our understanding of Ghazali has reached us through the way the Western Academy studies Ghazali. You will find still, till this day, people do PhDs on Ghazali in Oxford and Cambridge and Harvard and Princeton and Yale. You'll find very few Muslims in the Muslim world left who passionately read and study Ghazali. And the way they read our intellectual history and the way we read our intellectual history are going to be vastly different. In their reading of Islamic intellectual history, for them, Ghazali's major work is his Tahafat al-Falasifa, which is a book that he wrote, which is a refutation of the philosophers. You could even literally translate it as destruction of the philosophers. In fact, the Latin translation of this book is called Destructioni, <laughs> the destruction 
of the philosophers. Now what is Ghazali doing here? What Ghazali did is that after he studied the works of the philosophers for two years, he's not trying to destroy all of philosophy. This is a misunderstanding. Not that the West has. The West understands it properly. The Muslims misunderstand because they only read the title. <laughs> they don't actually read the text. They only know the title of the book. Allah Akbar. <laughs> he's not trying to destroy all of philosophy. He identifies 20 issues. He's identified 20 issues in the works of who the Muslim philosophers, most importantly Ibn Sina, but also Al-Farabi and Al-Kindi. 20 issues of the Muslim philosophers which he feels that they were incorrect, they were mistaken. Of those 20, he says 17 constitute a bidah. 17 constitute an unacceptable deviation from the norms of Islamic teachings. And three of those 20 constitute kufr. Actually would be tantamount to disbelief. And he writes briefly about those 17 and a bit more at length about those three. However, all of the rest of Aristotelian philosophy and logic, Ghazali says is completely fine. And this is an important thing to understand about Ghazali. And this is why I actually feel in this day and age we need a revival of Ghazali. Because Ghazali, especially for those people who are studying the liberal arts or the social sciences or humanities, and they are confronted and exposed with what we call epistemologies that are not based on revelation, on secular, desacralized epistemologies. Epistemology means, it's just a fancy English word, it means your way of knowing, your concept of knowledge, the way you conceptualize things, the way you view things, what you view to be knowledge what you view to be truth, what you view to be certainty, right? So, for example, liberalism is a different type of epistemology. For them, there are certain fundamental truths, which are the precepts of liberalism. Some of them may or may not be compatible with Islam, right? Certainly, historical classical liberalism, such as John Stuart Mill and others, had things that were much more capital compatible with Islam, whereas contemporary liberalism has a lot of things in it that is not compatible with any faith-based tradition, such as the permissibility of homosexuality, such as the open permissibility of abortion, such as even so far as same-gender marriages. These are all, quote-unquote, liberal positions today, right? And this, they, they, these are positions that they take because they think that they are coming from a fundamental notion of a human being's liberty or freedom or the individual's right. Right, so abortions activists talk about a woman's autonomy, it's her right, it's her body. So these are fundamental ways they think, that's called their epistemology. So liberalism, the epistemology of liberalism many times leads to positions that are not compatible with Islam. Why is Ghazali important today? Especially for the student of the Western humanities or social sciences. Because Imam al-Ghazali showed us the way that how a person who believes in Qur'an al-Kareem and Nabiya Kareem sallallahu how is it that we are supposed to engage in non-Islamic epistemologies? And that is that number one, you have to engage in a thorough study of them. I'm not saying everybody should do this. In fact, I think only a very few people should do this. <laughs> only that person who is also like Ghazali, who has already first thoroughly studied their own tradition, Right? Imam Ghazali didn't jump in and do a PhD in philosophy having only have a maktab education. 
Imam Zaid did a PhD in philosophy after having postdoctoral level knowledge on Islamic scripture and revelation. So the first example of his life is that this is a task that is farzikified. This is something that needs to be done. But this can only be done by a person who is thoroughly grounded and aware in ulum al-Islamiyyah. Grounded in the disciplines of learning of the deen of Islam. Then what that person has to do, that person has to do, is have to passively, openly learn, study, read and reflect on whatever they're trying to understand. Like Ghazali took two years in philosophy. They have to appreciate it. They have to think from within. And then those things that are not compatible with our deen, they have to be isolated out. And those things that are not incompatible, in other words, are compatible, are acceptable, they can be used. That's what Ghazali did for philosophy. So other than those 20 things, and this is Ibn Taymiyyah also didn't read him properly. These are two great shaykhs. Actually, the need of the time is for Muslims who can learn and combine. Number one, from the ikhlas and taqwa of them both. <laughs> this is the first thing that's amazing, that people who have neither the ikhlas and taqwa of either of them love to compare and make these two face off against one another. <laughs> so first, a person must have ikhlas and taqwa of them both. And second, a person must learn to appreciate that both of their perspectives are they just flip sides of the same coin, if you ask me. But it takes a lot of understanding and a lot of sabr and reading of Islamic classical text to understand that they're flip sides of the same coin. Otherwise, there's so many polemics out there that are trying to square off different members of the Islamic tradition against one another. So Ibn Taymiyyah, he just misread this thing because he himself did not study that philosophy for two, three years. So he couldn't appreciate what Ghazali had done. What Ghazali did was he separated out those 20 issues that are not compatible with Quran and Sunnah and the rest of it he says is acceptable to use, not necessary to use. Optional, acceptable. You can use logic and usul. In fact, because in mujtahid is human, so his ijtihad must conform to the rules of logic. Quran and Sunnah are not bound by the rules of logic, but the ijtihad of a mujtahid must necessarily be logical, cannot be illogical. And certain precepts of Aristotelian logic could be used to assess and evaluate an ijtihad. There's nothing wrong with that. <coughs> nothing khilaf is shara. Nothing khilaf in Quran was Sunnah in that. So of those 20 issues, I will just tell you very quickly. What are the three that Imam Ghazali identified as kufr so you know what they are? Right? And so you understand that this wasn't some close-minded, irrational look at philosophy. When you hear what the three issues are, you will realize that yes, these are things that are genuinely incompatible with the deen of Islam. The first was that the philosophers, including Ibn Sina, believed that the dunya, the material world, was not created. That it was pre-eternal. That just like Allah SWT is uncreated, the world is also uncreated. They believed that the material dunya was uncreated. That it existed forever. Imam Ghazali said, no, that's not possible. Why did they view that? Because this is long history. Because the Greek philosophers <coughs> viewed the material world as pre-eternal. They were just doing knuckle. They were just taking it from the Greeks. The Greek philosophers viewed that the world was the material world. That the material world had no beginning in the past, was not created in time, had been around forever. 
So Imam Muslim said, this view is not compatible because according to the deen of Islam, there is only one entity that has this feature that we call غير مصبوك adam that is not preceded by non-existence. There is only one being who can you can say has not been created. <laughs> there is only one being which has existed forever and that is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, the khaliq, wahid. Only one khaliq, everything else is makhluk. Everything is creation. The whole world is also creation. Second, and it's unfortunate that Ibn Rushd, when he critiqued Imam Ghazali, Ibn Rushd chose to take the argument that in the Quran al-Kareem there is no ayah that explicitly, and you will see these are fallacies and arguments. This is why you need to study logic. This is a logical fallacy. That Ibn Rushd says that there is no single ayah in the Quran that explicitly states that the world is not created. So you'll find sometimes people that will use that same method that there's no hadith that explicitly states this. They're looking for explicit statements in text and if there's non-explicit statement in the text they think that their belief is okay. There's so many teachings in Quran that make it crystal clear that Allah alone is khaliq and every single other thing must be makhluk. So actually you would realize that it wouldn't take rock, doesn't take a lot of knowledge of philosophy to realize that this is wrong. But Imam Ghazali showed us also the way of scholarship. Scholarship has to be compassionate, not passionate. Even if you within five minutes can tell this is not according to Islam, before a scholar and alim of Islam is going to formally label this belief as kufr, he's going to have to spend years studying philosophy. Years trying to get in the mind of Ibn Sina, why did he write this? And only after doing all of that and finding no way out for Ibn Sina did Ghazali say this view was kufr. Also taught us. We cannot just fire off. Many people today love to just fire off. And he did the same thing with the 17 bidas, by the way. People love to fire off. This is bidah, that is bidah, you are bidah, I am bidah. Hmm? <laughs> Not like that. Second, the philosophers... Ibn Sina and others thought that Allah Taala's knowledge only includes the universals and does not include the particulars. This was again a Greek philosophical concept. They actually believed in what they called the seven intellects. The seven intellects and they felt that the seventh intellect was what created the world but the seventh intellect created the world just in an abstract way without knowing and does not know after that act of creation the particular details of the world. So what would this mean if one were to apply this, Al-Aman al-Hafiz, but if one were to apply, how, how did they apply this to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala? Their view is that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala created the world, but that's it. He doesn't know everything that happens. He doesn't know the details of this world. He doesn't know the particulars. So again, this is something that you can see within a minute, that this is not compatible with Islamic belief. But again, you should learn how, what was the process that Imam al-Ghazali followed before he chose to declare it is not compatible with Islamic belief. And the third thing was that the philosophers believed that after death, the resurrection will only be of souls of the ruh. They denied the bodily resurrection. They denied that a person will, a human being after they die will get a jism again. They viewed it just that we will exist as arwah, exist as souls. So simply speaking, they denied the bodily resurrection of man. Right? 
So these are the three things that Imam Ta'ala judged to be against the teachings of Islam. The 17 are, that's a longer list, that's not actually the topic because we actually have to finish this text today. I haven't even begun the text yet. I'm just trying to introduce you to Ghazali. No questions yet, right? Okay. Just to give you an idea of what are those aspects of philosophy that Ghazali then accepted and used. So why not give you an example with the precepts of Aristotelian logic. That you can use rules of logic to sometimes catch or identify a fallacy in arguments. Right? So he said that is an acceptable way to critically evaluate and assess the argument of a mujtahid and their ijtihad. A second thing he accepted was the Aristotelian notion of what they called demonstrative proof. So in Arabic he gave this term burhan. Burhan. That you can... There's a particular type of syllogism, a type of proof, inductive reasoning. These are all just terms. Don't worry about it. But a way that you can, by argumentation, establish something conclusively, prove something to be true. That you can follow a certain process, a certain logical structure, step by step, to establish something to be true. Ghazali felt that there is Aristotelian method of doing so, the syllogism and demonstrative proof, that is also acceptable. One could use that in Islamic learning and scholarship. Here Ibn Taymiyyah again critiqued him on this as well. Uh, but again I would feel that Ibn Taymiyyah had not actually studied in depth Aristotle's concept of demonstrative proof and maybe did not fully appreciate in what sense Ghazali was trying to use it. Right? Because you see when a person like Ghazali spends so many years studying something, sifts the bad out from the good, and then articulates what is good, a person who picks that up may not realize that Ghazali did view that there was a limited scope for these things. He wasn't saying that all of Islam is going to be established through Aristotelian proof. He wasn't saying that. He was just talking about a method that was acceptable. But it may come across to a secondary reader that Ghazali was giving it more place than it's due, was giving it a greater role than its scope allowed, right? And my own reading of Ibn Taymiyyah is that all that he was that's all that he was really uh, trying to suggest. Alright? Okay. The third thing that Imam Ghazali does take, and you will see a little bit of that today in this text, is he felt that certain ways that the Greek philosophers described ethics, plain ethics, ethics and morality, right? Not things vis-a-vis a person's relationship with Allah, not ibadah, not worship, but just ethics. For example, some of their writings on anger and the different types of anger that a person has. Ghazali felt that some of that was helpful in trying to understand and help a person control their anger, which is the goal of Islam. So he felt that, okay, if there's anything in their ethical and moral teachings that you can use not as an asl, not as a core part of your understanding, but as a tool, as an alat, as a method to understand and control the nafs, to discipline the nafs, he said, that's fine. Because what they're saying about anger, there's nothing in that that is against the Quran, Sunnah, or Sharia. And anger is just one example, also on lust, also on modesty, and many, many different character traits. Again, Ghazali was sometimes critiqued by people, right? And again, obviously you can tell that I feel that that critique was unfair, but we have to understand the sentiment of that critic. So the critics were basically purists. And they just found it awkward that when you're talking about something that is part of deen of Islam, you're talking about adab and akhlaq, why would you want to bring in? any other concept, right? And that's a very genuine, sincere, initial reaction, right? 
But if for the sake of understanding, if to understand something and articulate it better, you make use of a non-Islamic philosophy as a tool of understanding, Ghazali's view is that would be okay, as long as there was nothing in that tool of understanding that contradicted the teachings of Islam. And this is what I'm suggesting is a similar approach that can be used today. And it is being used in default position because due to colonialism, the Muslims have not been able to articulate, let's say, for example, a very robust theory of economics. And even those who write in the areas of Islamic economics, if you read their works, for example, Asad Zaman, who did his PhD at Stanford and is one of the leading Islamic economists of today, he is using terms and concepts to articulate Islamic economics. He's using terms and concepts and definitions that have been developed by mainstream economics. Right? There's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with that. And sometimes those terms and concepts and frameworks and models can be used to articulate what the Islamic vision is. All right? So a very similar thing that goes on in economics and social sciences is what Imam al-Ghazali was trying to propose for the humanities. Now the next one or two things I want to tell you before we proceed to the text, and I just want to read out for you a little bit about, just give you the titles of the different sections of Ihya al-Muddin. See again, now what I was telling you was that for the Western reading of Islamic intellectual history, Ghazali's most important work was Tahafat al-Falasifah. In the Muslim reading of Islamic intellectual history, that's viewed as an insignificant work of Ghazali's. That's viewed just as something he wrote in passing. His asal work from our reading of Islamic intellectual history is Ihya Ulumuddin, is a revival of the religious disciplines. That is his real work. Tahafat al-Falasifah is just like the cherry on the cake. Put it that way. And Ihya al-Muddin is the asal is the real cake. And this was his real worry. His real concern was how to bring the deen back in ulama. That's why he went back to the madrasa. Ihya al-Muddin was actually written for ulama, for scholars. And today there are very few scholars who can say they've read the whole book. Allahu Akbar. Ajib. Very few scholars who can say they've read the whole book. So the Ihya al-Muddin consists of 40, they call it books in the sense that you, in, in Islamic tradition, sometimes a long chapter is called Kitab. It doesn't mean it's a big, thick, 200, 300 page book, but it's a section or parts you could call it, 40 parts, in which he divided them into four quarters, four sets of 10, 10 each. The first ruba, the first quarter is called rubal ibadat. The first quarter dealing with ibadat worship. I just want to read the chapter or part titles out to you so you get a feel of what it was that Ghazali wrote about. Uh, so you understand how he felt the deen should be revived. What were those ulum? What are those 40 ulum that Ghazali was trying to revive? So the first quarter is the rubal ibadat. In that the first one is the book of ilm, book of knowledge. Second is the book of belief, Iman and Aqaid. Third is the book about Taharat, about purity. Fourth is the book of Salah. Fifth is the book of Zakat. Sixth is the book of Psalm, so of prayer, of charity, of fasting. Seventh is the book on Hajj, the pilgrimage. 
8 is on the etiquettes of Quranic recitation, the adab of Quranic recitation. Ninth book is on du'a and athkar, on du'as and zikrs, invocations and supplications. And the tenth book is on orad, on different daily, what in English you would call a litany or a regular recited du'a, and on the night vigil on tahajjud and qiyamul layl. On tahajjud and qiyamul layl. Right? The second quarter is called rubal adat. The second quarter is about interpersonal relations. The norms of daily life. And that the first book, which would be book 11, is on the matters related to eating. 12 is on the matters related to nikah, marriage. 13 is on the matters relating to acquiring and earning a livelihood. Kasp, to earn a living. Fourth is halal and haram, on the lawful and the prohibitive. Fifteenth is on the duties of brotherhood. The duties of brotherhood. Sixteenth is a book that he wrote on khalwa. On the adab of seclusion. What does this mean? That in the deen of Islam there is no monasticism. The Prophet said, La rahbaniyata fil Islam. You cannot renounce the world altogether for your whole life. But you are allowed for certain periods of time to put yourself in seclusion from the world for spiritual curative purposes. The most famous sunnah in this is itikaf. An earlier sunnah is Nabi Karim Sassam going up to the mountain in the cave of Mount Hira. What was the Prophet doing? That was a type of khalwa. You find an even earlier precedent for this in the Quran, the story of Ashab al-Kahf, the companions of the cave. So there is a notion that sometimes you do need to disconnect yourself from your normal routine for some limited period of time. And that may be governed and dictated by your circumstances and how much wealth you even have and how much you can make sure that you can leave behind sufficient provision and funds for your family members and those who have rights over you. Right? And how long they can also emotionally last without you. But there is some limited period of time that you can go for khalma. Many times people today are get very worried about this, right? And why is it that you want to go and spend so many days in the path of Allah or so many days for the sake of deen? Whereas if that same person said, I'm going for 10 days to a conference on management, they say, go. <laughs> the same person said, I got a job in the oil fields of Libya on a rig or something. I have to be there for three months. And I can only come back once every three months. I say, go, 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 go. Because it's dunya. <laughs> so it's strange that the Muslims today believe in khalwa dunya that going into seclusion for the sake of dunya, but if somebody suggests to them some type of khalwa deen, they get all worried and they start saying, this not in Islam, brother. Allahu Akbar. <laughs> so he's written about the adab of khalwa. And, what, and when you go in this retreat... And there are many such ways of khalwa, can be in tazkiyah, can be in dawah. What are the adab? How should you best spend your time? How can you maximize your benefit when you're there in that khalwa? Even today in the corporate world, they have management retreats, literally. It's not one or two, it's the norm now. Why? Because they feel that if we want to improve, they call change management. If we want to improve the quality, the vision, the creativity of our managers, we need to take them out. <laughs> from the daily routine of the workplace. We need to stick them in some nice scenic area. We need to put them in a retreat, three-day retreat, ten-day management retreat. Allah Akbar. Khalwa dunya is taking place. And khalwa al-deen, the Muslims aren't able to do it. Hmm? Even the sunnah of itikaf is a fading tradition. Few, such few, maybe 10% of men, I don't think so, 1% of men will sit for itikaf. Hmm? 
Allah Akbar. Nabi Kareem Sassam, every year he said an itikaf. Every single year in Ramadan he said an itikaf. So, something. After a certain phase in his life, right, after having Masjid Nabui, from then onward, every single year he sat in itikaf. Here, so this was the book, uh, book 16. Book 16 was Khalwa. Book 17 is the Adab of Traveling. 18 is the Adab of Sima'a. This is a very complicated topic. It will come up a little bit in this text. Sometimes people translate music and singing. Allah Akbar. Sama actually in the early period of Tasawwuf didn't refer to musical instruments and singing and dancing. It referred to the recitation of poetry in the love for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, in the praise of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, in the love for the Prophet under extremely controlled conditions. Like sometimes they have something called controlled climate. Hmm? <laughs> so this is extremely controlled conditions. There are a lot of restrictions and conditions on the way this could happen and how this could occur. So Imam was wrote a whole book on that as well. Number 19. Amr bil ma'roof wa nahi anil munka. What are the adab of enjoining the good and trying to bring people away from that which is evil? And number 20. The adab of Nabi Kareem sallallahu alayhi wa The adab of following the sunnah. So this covers the second quarter. Third quarter. It's called rubal muhlikat. Muhlik are those things that will destroy a person. The quarter on the destructive things that lead a person to perdition, to calamity. So before he began, begins that, I mean the first few books aren't on destructive things, and this is where he articulates spirituality. So book number 21 is called Ajayb al-Qalb. Qalb is the spiritual heart of a person. Qalb is the spiritual heart of a person. And here Imam Ghazali talks about what is the Qalb. So that we can understand what are the ailments or the illnesses of the heart. Inner illnesses. Number 22 is called Riyadatun Nafs. On disciplining the nafs. So we must understand what the kalb is. And the next one is to understand what the nafs is. Number 23, Shahwatain, Breaking the two desires. Two desires, number one is lust. And number two is gluttony. The desire of lust. And number two, the desire of overeating. These two are related. Fascinating stuff Imam Azai says in that one. Fascinating. Number 24, the defects of the tongue, speech. Number 25, about hasad and ghil, rancor and envy and jealousy. Number 26, he wrote a book explaining, sort of condemning the world, the dunya, the material world, right? How inconsequential, of inconsequential value the material world is. 27, is on bukhul, on stinginess and miserliness, to control a person from having that. Number 28 is on riya. Riya means ostentation, status, display, showing off. Number 29 is the condemnation of ujub and kibber, of vanity, conceit, pride and arrogance. And number 30, the last one of that quarter, is on the condemnation of self-delusion, of falling into delusions about oneself. And the last quarter, the last 40, the last 10 of those 40 are known as Rubal Munjiyat. Munji is that thing which brings a person to Nijaa, that thing which brings a person to salvation. And that, the first book in that, so book 31, is on Tawbah, Kitab Tawbah, the book of repentance, repenting to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. The next one is on Sabr and Shukr, patience and thankfulness. 33 is Raja and Khauf, Khauf and Raja, fear and hope. 
34 is on zuhud. Zuhud. To be abstinent from this world. To not love the world. To be in the world but not of the world. To have the world but not be attached to the world. Number 35 is on tawakkul. Tawakkul means faith in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Trusting in the divine being. Number 36 is on muhabba. And rida'a on love, longing and contentment in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Number 37 is on niyat, ikhlas and sidq. On intention, sincerity and truth. Number 38 is the book on muraqabah. On holding a book on muhasaba, on self-examination. Number 39 is the book on muraqabah. Muraqabah means introspection. It's going to come today in the course of the text. Introspection, keeping a vigil over one's heart and making a heart keep a vigil on Allah. And the 40th and final part of Ihya Ulumuddin on remembrance of death and preparation for the hereafter. On the remembrance of death and preparation for the hereafter. So this was an overview of Imam Ghazali's thought of his life and his thought. Now this text. This text is called Ayyuhal Walad. There is some disagreement among scholars on Ghazali whether this text was originally written in Persian or written in Arabic. We are going to be using the Arabic text today. And basically the disagreement lies that we have manuscripts in Arabic and we have manuscripts in Persian. And there are slight variations in the Arabic manuscripts and slight variations in the Persian manuscripts. Those who think that the Persian the letter was written in Persian, the title is A Farzand. If you know Urdu, if you know good Urdu, A Farzand. Same thing as Ayuhal Walad. Or in English you mean Oh my dear son, right? So they think that the Persian was the original and the Arabic are translations from the Persian and that's why there's slight variations in the Arabic because people may have translated slightly differently. And the ones who think the Arabic was original, they see there's slight variations in the Persian because the Persians are translations and people may have translated the Arabic differently. And like I told you, because Imam Ghazali does, he was a Persian and he does have works that he has authored in Persian. And I was going to do that, but I decided to skip that because time is short, but I was going to give you a brief overview of his other works. But these are things you can read about as well, uh, even on the internet. All right. Uh, so there's some disagreement there as to whether the original of this work is written in Persian or in Arabic. Agreement, however, on the dating and chronology, and this is something very important when you're engaged in history of ideas, and specifically when you're looking at a particular thinker. Two very big things that come up is, number one, the authenticity of texts. Because it's a very big debated area in Ghazali studies, that there are certain works, certain books that everybody agrees Ghazali wrote them. Then there's a whole other set of books that there's a lot of dispute whether Ghazali himself wrote them or somebody else wrote them and just stuck Ghazali's name on top of it. This also happened in the medieval period. This is the feature of all medieval scholarship, right? And everybody agrees that some of the works are definitely not going to be Ghazali's. But which ones are generally attributed to him and which ones are not to be attributed to him, there's a lot of debate. Even, again, between and amongst Muslim scholars and between and amongst non-Muslim scholars on Ghazali. Alhamdulillah, this text, Ayyuhal Walad, is one of those texts that there's agreement that it is correctly attributed to Ghazali. So it is indeed an authentic work that is ascribed to Ghazali. So you don't have to get into that discussion. Second issue that comes up when you have uh, the history of ideas, that is what we call chronology. You need to be able to date a particular thinker's works accurately in order to be able to see how their thought evolved over time. 
And many times if you don't know which work came later. I'll give you another example of another thinker, Shah Waliullah. Very sometimes there's a couple of his works where it's unsure which one, which one came later. And how you choose to answer that question is going to radically change your reading sometimes of that person's thought. Alright? Alhamdulillah, here also we're blessed from having to go into that discussion because Ayyuhul Walad is universally accepted to be one of his last works. There's this work, the Munkid Min the spiritual autobiography, and Minhaj al Abidin, and one or two possible works again in philosophy. All of these are viewed to be the final few works of Ghazali. So this is one of the last works that he wrote. Nobody has held it to be the absolute last one, but it is towards the end of his life. Alright? Third discussion that does come up here is that Okay, I will explain that when we begin the text. Alright, so let's begin. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. You can put this up on the screen for those of you who are not able to obtain the book. Yeah, page two. Alright, so I don't know if you can see and if you feel if you if you want to make it even larger, you can then just, just magnify the English if you want, and you can leave the Arabic for them. Right? And you can all come a bit closer if you want. There's no need to sit so far. There's a whole and just like you don't bury you shouldn't leave the first row empty for this either. Alright, as we go through the first page of the bit of the introduction of the text, I will explain to you a little bit more about what this text is. Alright? Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim, Imam Ghazali, begins this which is essentially a letter. Essentially a letter. It's a very long letter. <laughs> right? It's a very long letter. This is really what you would call a risala or an epistle, a treatise that he is writing in response to one of his students. Alright? That he is writing in response to one of his students. Alright. Um, so the, th- the third thing I was mentioning, there's a slight difference of opinion here, although the vast majority of scholarship on this feels that Imam Ghazali was actually writing this to a particular student. Because he mentioned several times. There's one or two uh, non-Muslim scholars who have looked at this text, and their view was that Imam Ghazali is just using this Ya Ayyuhalwa as a literary device. He's actually just wanted to write a short book, and he's making it sound as if he's addressing it to somebody who's asked him a question. And you find this uh, in many of the dialogues and of Socrates that have been compiled by Plato are not always necessarily conversations between real people. It is a literary device used to structure your writing in the form of a dialogue. But in my own position on this as well is that this was a genuine person and one of the manuscripts in fact mentions his name, Abdullah uh, Abdullah ibn Hajj al-Khalil, the name of the student who wrote this letter, all right, who asked the question to which this is going to be a response. So if you see here, Imam Ghazali begins, Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. This is a standard feature of all classical and contemporary Islamic writing. And this is viewed as doing ittibah of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, following Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in the Qur'an al-Kareem, that he has begun his Qur'an, and he has begun every chapter except one of his Qur'an, with Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. So they also begin their writings with Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. And it's also viewed as ittiba' and the sunnah, following the sunnah of Nabi Akareem Wasallam, because the Prophet said in the hadith, that anything, any matter or affair that is begun, without beginning in the name of Allah, then that will not have any barakah in it, that will not bear fruition. And many, many hadith that mention 
the benefit and barakah and blessing of beginning things in the name of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. And then he says, Alhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen. Again, to praise Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala because this is the way Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala began the Quran, that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala begins with praise for him in Surah Al-Fatiha. وَالْعَاقِبَةُ لِلْمُتَّقِينَ And this is now a dua. Aqiba literally just means the end, but here it actually means khayrul aqiba. Those of you who are studying Arabic would know that this alif lam is iwas. Iwas anil muza'af. So actually it's khayrul aqiba. Wa khayrul aqibati lil muttaqeen. And may the best and most noble of outcomes be granted to those who follow the path of taqwa. Right? I will not always be using the exact same English that is here. Uh, there are a number of at least three English translations that I'm aware of. We picked this edition, uh, number one, because it has the Arabic in it, so it was a good edition for us to have. And second, because uh, I do feel that he has done a quite good job of translating the Arabic. All right? Third, وَالصَّلَاةُ وَالسَّلَامُ عَلَى نَبِيِّهِ مُحَمَّدٍ وَآلِهِ أَجْمَعِينَ It's also a standard feature of all Islamic writing. That after praising Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and moving on to sending salutations and blessings and peace on the Kareem sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. I'm not going to spend too long discussing this. In the madrasa, you'd spend a couple of days just on Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. <laughs> you spend a couple of more days on Alhamdulillah Rabbil Alameen. You spend a couple of more days on Wassalatu Wassalam when they tell you all the meanings of Salah, all the meanings of Salam, Allah Akbar. <laughs> you can do that for days. But we're not here to teach you in that style, right? We want to get you as quickly as possible to the core matter of the text. I'lam, no. Now here, what is happening, this paragraph is an insertion. This paragraph is not written by Imam Zalim. This paragraph is an insertion of the copyist or the transmitter. By this period in Islamic history, you already have massive use of writing. So in all likelihood, this is not a text that has been transmitted orally, but actually this is a text that was transmitted textually. And Imam Ghazali would have written it to a student, and that student would have shared it with others, and copyists would hand copy. It was before the printing press, right? The famous Gutenberg printing press that changes the development of knowledge by enabling mass printing, right? Hand copyists. So the copyist sometimes inserts an introductory paragraph. So this next paragraph that we're about to do is actually inserted by the copyist. And I'll tell you, uh, basically the two next two paragraphs are insertions by the copyist, as if you will, a preface. Like today sometimes there's an editor's preface, translator's preface, publisher's preface, right? So you can imagine these two paragraphs from like the copyist's preface. <laughs> that know that one of the Senior students of Imam Ghazali that he kept doing the khidmah. He kept spending time in the company and learning in the service of Shaykh. You will find here that he's translated the word Shaykh as master. Sometimes that word rubs certain Muslims the wrong way. Because when they hear the English word master, they think of the Arabic word Mawla. Right? Or they think of the Arabic word, sorry, Malik. And for them, Malik is Allah alone, right? So first you should know that the Arabic word is Sheikh. Alright? The reason why this translator, however, has chosen to translate the Arab word Sheikh as master, can be understood because he was thinking of what is called the master-apprentice relationship. 
And you still have that term used in English today. For example, it's in the American Army. There is a person called Master Sergeant, and in the Navy, Master Chief. They call him Master. They don't mean Master in the sense that God is Master, in the sense that Allah SWT is Malik. But they mean Master, or the same, in fact, and more common example I give you, is a person who is given a Master of Arts. <laughs> what does it mean? Because he has acquired mastery over that field. So Imam Ghazali was a Master Class Alim, or look at chess, they have master and grandmaster. Allah Akbar. <laughs> Imam Ghazali is grandmaster of ilm, grandmaster of tasawwuf. So it's not to be understood here as master in that sense. So I'm, but still, because some people have this deep sensibility to this word, so we're, I'm just going to use the Arabic word sheikh. I need to translate that for you. In fact, a lot of the things that he has felt uh, the need to translate, because obviously the book is written. Uh, with an English-speaking audience, many of whom would be non-Muslims, not conversant with Islamic religious terminology in mind, but because we're teaching you as much of the things I can leave untranslated as possible, we're going to leave untranslated. But you have the English on the screen, so those who need to look at the translation as well. Right? So the Arabic for the word master was sheikh, so we're going to use the word sheikh. Lazama khidmat sheikh al-imam zayn al-deen Zain al-Din means the zinat of the deen, the beauty of the deen. He is translated as ornament, which is fine also. Ornament of the deen, the adornment of the deen, the beauty of the deen. This, was, this is called a lakab in Arabic. Lakab means this was a title that was given to Imam al-Ghazali posthumously. This is not his name. His name is not Zain al-Din. This is a title being given. This can also be a name. This is a title being given to him. Next title, Hujjat al-Islam. Hujjat al-Islam literally means the proof of Islam. And this was meant in two ways. Number one, it meant, and it had to do with this concept of yakin. Number one, it meant that if you want to see a proof of Islam, if you want proof that Islam is true, the fact that a human being of the intellectual stature of Ghazali has chosen to be Muslim, that itself is a proof of Islam. That's why they call them Hujjat al-Islam. Allahu Akbar Kabira. Our Ummah used to have people like that, of that stature. We had thousands of them. We had tens of thousands of them once upon a time. Allah Akbar. That you want to know that Islam is true? There. Look at Ghazali. That's what they meant. Allah Akbar Kamira. Subhanallah wa bihamdi. Subhanallah al-Azim. And second meaning of Hujjat al-Islam was that Imam Ghazali's writings and articulations established the Hujjiyah, established the Burhan, established the definite, conclusive Proof of Islamic teachings. So there were two senses in which he was called Hujjat al-Islam. Abi Hamid ibn Muhammad al-Ghazaliyyi. So this we mentioned to you. Right? His lakab was another, his kunya was Abu Hamid. And his first name was also Muhammad. And his father's name was Muhammad al-Ghazali. Right? Then if you look in the Arabic, it says, or you, you keep looking at the English, Qaddasallahu ruhahu. Sometimes they say, Qaddasallahu sirrahu. What this means is that may Allah subhanahu preserve his ruh. Or sometimes they would say, may Allah subhanahu preserve his sir. So he's translated for his, may God sanctify his spirit. Okay, that's a good idiomatic rendering of this, right? May Allah subhanahu keep his ruh noble and pure and pristine. May he join his ruh with the arwa of the anbiya, mursaleen and janata for those. It's a type of dua. It's a dua that is being made. 
Alright? It's a prayer for Imam Ghazali. Alright. Now this person, the student, the senior student of Imam Ghazali, occupied himself with the acquisition and study of knowledge. I'm going to have to move a little bit faster now. Occupied himself with the acquisition and study of knowledge under Imam Ghazali. Okay? When the English is pretty much perfectly fine, we're not going to try to do the Arabic with you. Alright? Until he mastered the details of the ulum. Okay, now you're not going to want to say sciences. Right? Until he mastered the details, daqa'iq al-ulum. The disciplines of Islamic learning. That's what we're going to use. So now I'm just going to in Arabic say ulum. So when you see sciences, read ulum and think disciplines of Islamic learning. Mastered the details of the ulum. And filled out the good qualities of their nafs. Filled out the good qualities of their nafs. Because soul in English sometimes can be used for nafs. Sometimes can be used for ruh. So we're going to use the Arabic to make it clear for you. Filled out the good qualities of his nafs. Then one day, that student considered a situation. Now this is one of the students of Imam Ghazali. One of the graduates, an alim, a madrasa graduate of the madrasa nizamiyah. And a person who had the fortune to study under Imam Ghazali. And he also, it's mentioned here, وَاسْتَكْمَلَ فَزَائِلَ nafs. That is what the Arabic says. وَاسْتَكْمَلَ He completed the fazail of the nafs, the virtues of his nafs. And then one day he considered his situation, he reflected upon himself, and it occurred to him that I have studied various ulum. Again, this is ulum here. That I have studied various ulum, not various kinds of science, biology, chemistry, and physics, no. Various ulum al-Islamiyya, tafsir, usul al-tafsir, ulum al-Quran, hadith, usul al-hadith, mustalahat al-hadith, fiqh, usul al-fiqh, ilm al-kalam, ilm al-kalayd, ilm al-balagha, ilm al-mantik, ilm al-nahu, ilm al-sarf, ulum, the disciplines of Islamic learning. And I spent my life studying them and gathering them, literally, but he's put here mastering them. Studying them and gathering them, compiling them, we can say mastering them, Right? Getting a solid grip and grasp over them. Now, I need to find out which of all of those ulum, what is it in all those knowledges that I gathered that will be of use to me in the future, will be used to me, i.e. on the day of judgment. Literally, it's ghadan tomorrow. What will be of use to me tomorrow? He's thinking by tomorrow, not tomorrow. <laughs> For him, today equals the whole world, and tomorrow equals the day of judgment. For him today equals the whole world and tomorrow equals the day of judgment. This is a way of thinking. <laughs> this is a way of thinking. My whole lifetime on earth is today and tomorrow is when I'm presented in front of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Allah Akbar. So this is what he's thinking. And he wants to know what's going to be of use to me. What will keep me company in the grave? What are those uloom that are not of use to me? So that I can discard them, I can give them up, I don't have to worry about retaining them. And then he obviously, being an alim, somebody who studied hadith, he's recalling to himself a hadith. Kamakal Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Allahumma a'udhubika min ilmin la yanfa. That, oh Allah, I seek your refuge in that knowledge that is not of benefit. It's a very important sunnah of Nabi Kareem sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. If you want to know what dua you should recite every day when you come back from university, it's this dua. <laughs> <laughs> oh Allah, I seek refuge in you from knowledge that is not really of any benefit, of useless knowledge, of idle knowledge. 
And by benefit nafa, it means benefit in the afterlife. يَوْمَ لَا يَنْفَعُ مَالًا وَلَا بَنُونَ إِلَّا مَنْ أَتَى اللَّهَ بِقَلْبٍ سَلِيمٍ That nafa. Of everlasting, eternal benefit. So then, now the, the preface, the copyist is writing about him. That this thought persisted to him so much such that he wrote Kataba ila Hazrat Shaykh. This is Arabic. Kataba ila Hazrat Shaykh. You thought Hazrat was an Urdu word? Hmm? Used by Pakistanis and Indians? No. <laughs> you can show it to them if you want on the Arabic. Yakin or give them some Ainul Yakin if you can find it easily. Yeah, the last, the bottom line, the last half. Kataba ila. Everybody read it. Kataba ila. Kataba ila. Hazrat Sheikh. Allah Akbar. Okay, go back to the English. Kataba ila Hazrat Sheikh Hujjat al Islam Muhammadin al Ghazali. Rahimahullah ta'ala. So, how did he translate this from English? The Honorable Master. Hazrat means a person who has huzur, who has presence of heart with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, whose heart is always present in the remembrance of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, who is aware that he is always being presented in front of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So this was a term that they used for the awliyaullah, for the dhakirin Allah kathiran wa dhakirat, for those who had such an abundance of remembrance from Allah, that they were always consciously aware that they are in the presence of Allah. That's where this term comes from. Shaykh, so I already told you, Shaykh, he's again calling it Master. Hujat al-Islam, we already did that for you. Imam Muhammad al-Ghazari, Mullah Okay. Seeking a ruling. Now, why is he saying this? Because this is istifta. Istifta. Actually, literally, he was seeking a ruling. So, one thing that he writes him, is he asked for a fatwa. Second thing that he does. Wasa'alahu masa'ila. And then he asks him a series of questions. Third thing he does. Waltamasan nasihatan that he asked for a nasiha, request for an advice, and fourth thing would dua and ask for dua. So this also is something that we're learning about the adab of how to acquire knowledge from our elders. That yes, we should communicate to them that we maybe we have a legal issue that we need a ruling on. Maybe there's some questions that we need answers for, but along with asking them what we think we need to know, we should ask them to tell us what they think we should know. That's Nasih. That okay, I have these questions. I need you to answer those questions, but I also want you to give me some Nasih. You know better what I need to know. This is my own feebles, uckles, attempt to identify what I need to know, so I'm asking you that. But you would probably maybe know better what I need to know, so tell me some of that also. And then I need your du'as. <laughs> Most importantly, most of all, I need your du'as. So this is the adab of the student for his teacher. Alright. And then, what did he write? Now the copyist is going back to the words of the letter. So what did he write? That even though the writings of the shaykh, such as Ihya, Ihya Ulumuddin, the revival of religious ulum, and other writings contain the answer to my questions, he wrote that. He says, shaykh, I know you've written so many books, Right? I know probably I could find the answers to my questions somewhere in my books. He's anticipating. Right? Don't write back the email and say you can find it on Google and Wikipedia. You can find it in my books. <laughs> That's what today's professor would do to you. 
Right? So he's anticipating that. He says, even though the Sheikh is probably written on all these things, what I want is for the Sheikh, right? And you do see the recurrent use of the word master is a little bit awkward, right? What I want is for the Sheikh to write down what I need in a few pages to be with me for the rest of my life. And I will act in accordance with them during my term, during my muddat, the period of life that I have left on earth, if Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wills. Now what's going on here? This is the demonstration of the student's ikhlas, his sincerity. And many people today ask ulama questions. They write long emails, you may not even get a reply. <laughs> but you write this to somebody that, no, I want you to write me something. Why? Because what you write me, I'm going to clasp it to my breast. I'm going to keep it with me my whole life. I'm going to live according to what you write me. <laughs> So he's showing himself to be a serious, true, dedicated student. He's not just asking for the sake of asking. Not just asking for intellectual edification, self-glorification. He's asking for amal. He wants ilm because he wants to do amal on it. He's pledging and promising. He's displaying his intention to do amal on it. That is ikhlas. That is that ilm that benefits. That ilm benefits when it is sought by a person who already wants to do amal on that ilm. So because of these last few lines, the Shaykh then Fakataba Shaykh had his Risala. Now the copyist is writing. So therefore then the Shaykh wrote him this Risala, this treatise, this epistle in reply. Wallahu Alamin Allah Spanta knows best. Alright. Now you turn the page. Page number four is where we begin Imam al Ghazali's own letter. Alright, so we're going to take a short fifteen minute break here. I give you a rough schedule. Rough schedule to follow. Sometimes we may deviate from that schedule. I personally think 10 minutes is enough for you because I haven't even started anything. So I say you take a 10 minute break and then we'll actually come back and then we will full force begin the text in actuality. Jazakum Allah.